0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Year ago Today. I'm your host, Tyler Fowler, and I am so thrilled that you're here with me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you've been listening forever, I want you to know that your support just really means the world to me, Um, even if not forever, for a couple weeks or however long. And if you're new, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. I'm so excited you're here. And if you came to this podcast because you are a friend or a fan of my guest today, uh, David Monteagudo, welcome, welcome to you as well. I, (laughs) you know, it's interesting because this podcast has been such an evolution and I've been like trying to figure out how to make it a balance between talking about myself and holding space for the experiences of my guest. And If you've been following along, you'll know that in the past few weeks I've had some incredibly long intros to these episodes. And that's because sometimes there are things in the episodes that I feel like I need to reframe before I present them to the public because the way this works is that I record these episodes as the anniversaries arise, and then I release the episodes one at a time. So this episode that's coming out today if, was recorded back in late May, late May, I think, or early, early June. And a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot has happened in my life since then. I'm a different person than I was. I'm sure everybody is a different person than they were in late June because we're growing and changing and shifting and evolving every day. Um, most of us. <laughs> so... That said, I'm really wanting to let these episodes kind of focus on the experience of the guests and the stories of the guests and talk less about myself because not everybody is interested in hearing about me. And on the other hand, I know some people are really interested in hearing about me and my experience. The episodes that I have like talking about myself or one of my own own anniversaries Uh, Rather than interviewing someone else about an anniversary are usually the episodes that have the most downloads So I do know that there is interest in that and it's been interesting I'm using I use the word interesting all the time. I'm noticing that's (laughs) I don't know if you guys are noticing that or not anyway, it's It's interesting to Try to find the balance. So What feels important to tell you this week? First, I want to tell you that my guest, David Monteagudo, is just an incredible human. He is a theater director who has, you know, dedicated his life to art and then living in NYC as so many artists do, he has gone away from the art and come back to the art and tried to do resume building that will enable him to focus on his art. And I respect his path so much, especially his willingness to pivot and change directions when something's not working for him. That's one of the things we really talk about in here. Another thing that we really talk about in this episode um, is what it means to, like, excavate one's own internalized oppression, uh, the experiences of oppression within families, and how we navigate that, how we move the world as allies to marginalized people's how we unpack our own privilege, how we begin to hold other privileged people accountable for their actions. And I was about to say blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's kind of, (laughs) you know, not blah, 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 but I think you get what I'm saying. (sighs) And the reason I'm saying this is because in this episode, this episode was recorded only two days after my ex-boyfriend Matt and I decided to take some time apart. So listening back to it was really interesting for me because when he and I separated, we really believed that we were going to take some space and that in allowing some space, we would be enabled to find a way to come back to one another. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you choose to look at it, Once we allowed that space between us, I think what we both really found is that uh, (laughs) I find myself struggling for words, I am not fearful of saying the wrong thing, and yet I want to be really careful and respectful in talking about this situation, because I'm not the only one involved, and I know that many people who listen to this know my ex-boyfriend, and He's know that he's an incredible human. So we all know that. (laughs) What do I want to say? I want to say that in this episode, I talk about some of my experiences with my ex-boyfriend and his family that have to do with oppression, that have to do with the... Aggression and microaggression that I believe comes from people not doing the work to excavate their own internalized oppression. So, what can this look like? For me, this looks like and has looked like um, the kind of microaggressions that people face all the time you know subtle messages that let you know that your presence is not valued that your opinion is not valued that you are not respected within the community despite the fact that the people from whom you're receiving these messages that those people love you and care about you you know a really really simple example is like the way that a lot of men tend to speak over and interrupt women in conversation consistently over and over and that like an isolated incident of this is not that big a deal. However, over a long period of time, it can begin to be really wearing. And the important thing to realize is that this is not just a dynamic between men and women. This is also a dynamic that exists in racial um, racial issues. So... If you are a white person, I want you to take a deep breath and realize that when I talk about, you know, white people as a group, I'm not saying all white people, though I do believe all people have internalized oppression and would be served by looking at and unpacking those things. What I am saying is that there are general tendencies inside that certain population, just like there is a general tendency of men who haven't done the work to look at the ways in which they microaggress and outwardly aggress toward women similarly I think most white people haven't done the work to understand the ways that they microaggress and macroaggress toward people of color and I will say that I while I'm doing my best to speak to these issues I am a student of these issues myself I am i am by no means perfect i am unpacking my own internalized racism all day every day and it continues to blow my mind all the little things that i've done my whole life or thought my whole life or little subconscious judgments that i have or tendencies that i have to see things a certain way that are based not on reality but rather on the way i've been conditioned to understand the world Because we live in a world where people of color are treated as less than. We live in a world where women are treated as less than. And the the really, really challenging thing about this is it's, it's not one single person's fault. You know, when someone is acting from their subconscious bias, it's really challenging to blame that person when they've been conditioned to act the way they're acting. That said, it's really, really, really important that we begin to look at these things and hold ourselves and one another accountable. So all that is simply to say that the things I say in this episode about what I've experienced are true. They're true to my experience. What is not in this episode is a fuller picture of what was going on in my relationship with Matt and our breakup and all of the many, many, many factors that contributed to that. Um, Some of the aggression and microaggression that I experienced in relationship with his family most definitely was a contributing factor. However, there is also so much that I, over the course of the last few months, have learned to take responsibility for the ways in which I was emotionally manipulative with him, the ways in which I was emotionally abusive with him, the ways in which my inability to speak up for myself, especially in relationships with his family, really, really negatively impacted my relationship with him one-on-one. And those things are on me. You know, it's my responsibility to keep myself safe. And for a long time, I haven't known how to do that. I haven't known how to take care of myself. I haven't known how to communicate honestly about my experiences of being harmed, especially when it's something so subtle that someone could say, "Oh, well, that's not harming you," um, which is kind of the the experience that I had. You know, I remember one specific time when. When his father said to me, "I don't believe that you've ever been oppressed." and the thing is that that was so confusing for me because when you know what's true for your experience and you say, "Well yes, every single you t- every single time you talk over me if it's happening consistently over and over and over and over every time we're together, that is oppression, you know and What I've come to realize is that I've been conditioned to accept the things that white men say as fact. So when he told me, you've never been oppressed, I got so confused and I started to feel crazy. And I'm not crazy. This is a thing that exists in the world. It's not isolated to this particular family. It's everywhere. All the time if you look at the dynamics between men and women if you look at the dynamics between white people and people of color once you know what you're looking for you'll be amazed I see it happen on the subway I see it happen I see it happen at restaurants I see it happen on the street it happens everywhere we go the thing is most of us especially if we're members of a privileged class men and white men in particular don't know what we're looking for, haven't learned to see it, and therefore can continue to believe that these dynamics don't exist, when in fact they very much do. So, all that is just to say that my ex-boyfriend is an incredible human being. He comes from a family of incredible human beings who I love with all of my heart and who I deeply respect, regardless of how it may sound, listening back to this and again remember this was recorded only two days after he and i decided to split so i was also in a place where my emotions were pretty charged and i hadn't fully processed so that's the danger when we're out in the world speaking about our experiences as we're having them is that perhaps we haven't been able to fully process them or understand them and can we trust ourselves to show up authentically and honestly anyway i think we can as long as we are taking the extra step to say what I've said here is true and it's not the whole truth. So I had thought maybe I would like go into some of the things I've understood in the larger context of the ways I am responsible for the dissolution of my partnership with Matt. However, I don't want to take up a lot of time right here because I want to get to the episode. So here's what I'm going to do. For a long time, I've been intending to monetize this podcast because, up till now, I have been I've been covering the cost out of my own pocket. I'm paying for the sound editing. You know, I'm not paid for my time. Um, I also have received a lot of help from my producer and former co-host Sally Mercedes. She's not paid for her time, and because of that, it's made it really challenging to show up and treat this seriously and take it like a job. And it also sometimes makes it challenging to keep going because it feels very often like I'm pushing this content out into a vacuum and there's not an exchange of energy happening between me and the people who are receiving these recordings and who are being supported by this work. So what I'm doing now is I am launching, relaunching, we used to have a Patreon and then I took it down and now I'm going to relaunch our Patreon where you'll have an opportunity to go and you can make a recurring financial contribution to support this work. It can be a dollar. I think I'm going to have like a dollar a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, $7 a month. And the reason I'm telling you this is because if you choose to donate at that $7 a month level or higher, I'm going to give you access to some exclusive recordings. I'm going to go make an entire recording about what I've come to understand about my own responsibility inside this breakup with my ex-boyfriend, Matt. And I'm going to own all of the things that I did that are terrible. You know, sometimes when you start to understand your own behavior, you're like, oh my God, I'm a monster. And that's honestly how I feel. Like, this poor man, uh, he's probably scarred forever from being in this relationship with me. You know, I... I don't hesitate to say that his ability to trust women is probably really greatly impacted by the subtle ways in which I was undermining trust in our relationship so I want to talk a lot more about that because I know that there are a lot of women and and humans out there who are wondering why their relationships aren't working, and they haven't become fully present to the ways in which their own behavior is undermining the ability to trust and love the people around them. So that is going to be one exclusive recording. I think I'm also going to make recordings of the apologies that I've sent out. You know, I just went through this thing called the Landmark Forum, and as part of that you do some taking ownership of your own behavior with the people that it's impacted. So I've been sending apologies to the people in Matt's family, and I think I'm gonna make recordings of those, and I'm gonna make that part of the exclusive content. And then the other piece that is present right now is that I made some incredibly emotionally charged recordings as this breakup was happening, that because I kept having technical difficulties, I wasn't able to release at the time of the recordings. Um, And I'm grateful for that because I needed some time and some perspective to know how to handle those charged things responsibly. And what I've come to understand is the way I'm going to handle them responsibly is that I'm going to put them behind this little bit of a paywall. I don't want this stuff just out there in the world for everyone to hear, you know. However, if you are someone who supports me and my work and who wants to deepen into your own learning around what it looks like to take responsibility for your actions within relationships, what it it looks like to take full ownership for what's happened, that's available to you. And it's going to be available for a recurring contribution of $7 a month. And I know that there are going to be a lot of other things that are going to come up in terms of exclusive content around me talking more vulnerably about what's going on for me in my life as I begin shifting the episodes to more and more and more of simply holding space for my guests rather than talking about myself so much, which is something that I'm excited about. So I would be so, 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 so moved. If you would consider supporting me and my work in this world and letting me know that it matters to you, that I continue to create these recordings, and that I continue to make myself vulnerable, and that I continue to show up in the fullness and authenticity of who I am because it serves you. So... Have I done a good job with that sales pitch? I hope so. And this recording is already 20 minutes long, almost. So much for a short intro. Thank you for listening. The link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Please go support the work. Please allow yourself to receive these exclusive recordings. There's a lot there, there's a whole lot there, and I'm really eager to share it with you. However, it's up to you to afford yourself that opportunity. It's up to you to afford yourself access to the things that are gonna help you to learn and grow. And I really hope that you will. Also, please, please, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Share the podcast with your friends. Send me an email, let me know what landed for you, what was activated for you. Follow us on social media, all of the handles, all of the emails, all of the links will all be in the show notes. And the last thing I'll say is that it feels like with this episode, I am initiating a new era of this podcast. I am I'm stepping into a new level of commitment around the production of this podcast and the way I show up inside the energy. I want to be here for you guys. I want to be a light for your growth and your expansion. And I want to know who you are. I want to know who's in this with me. And one of the ways you can help me know that is by going to the Patreon and supporting the work. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, Dave. Hi. <laughs> um, everybody out there listening, this is my friend, Dave, I'm going to say your last name, is it Monteagudo?
1: Yes, uh, I mean, there's, that's the, that is definitely the, the pronunciation most often used but I guess technically it's Monteagudo.
0: Oh, so it sounds so much sexier when you say it.
1: <laughs> the, 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 Cuban pronunciation, I guess.
0: Oh, well I'm glad you were here to correct me on that. I know Dave because he is a director, correct?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And he directed a show that Matt was in called But I Could Only Whisper, which was one of the most amazing pieces of art I've ever seen.
1: Oh, thank you. Of
0: course. Oh, my goodness. That touched on so many incredible topics. And so I've been a fan of your work for a while. And then we hang out at the same bar sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) which is now sadly closed. Rest in peace, Souths. Uh, Anyway, now here we are, and we're going to dive into talking about your anniversary. Um, So I'm going to invite you, as we start, to close your eyes, Dave. And take a couple deep breaths and just go back to where you were a year ago today. And allow yourself to feel into what was going on. And all the things that were going through your head and all the feelings that were moving through your body. And when you feel like you're really present with that energy, if you could share with me in one word how you were feeling.
1: Excited. mm
0: Hmm. Yay! (laughs) All right, (laughs) so in one sentence, can you tell everybody what was going on a year ago today for you?
1: Yeah. uh, A year ago today, I had left, Um, I was working as a uh, director of operations for an arts and technology camp uh, that focused on empowering kids um, through like their own self-directed creative process. And I moved to... um, a company that did uh, sort of large-scale events for video game developers. So it was a new sort of opportunity for me to um, to tackle something that I was, was excited about and sort of take on some more responsibility and, you know, s- an opportunity for some professional growth.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. And was this shift a long time in the making, or was it something that cropped up on you suddenly?
1: You know, it's... It's funny because it was sort of, I mean, so we started by talking about like, you know, you know me from my work as a theater director, and it was actually not shortly after that production. I think I did one more production of a hip hop show called The Ones and the Twos. And then I had (laughs) a 29-year-old, I guess, quarter life, little post-quarter life crisis and was like, oh, no, what am I doing? How am I going to? Survive in the world, and so I sort of <laughs> did some self analysis and you know tried to figure out some things that would help me be able to sustain my life in New York. And so I started targeting these sort of like events, you know, production event management type of positions. And so then that, that was sort of a two year that, that was sort of one year into sort of trying that journey, and now I'm actually writing about. Two years from that. So the first year was sort of doing the operations for the camp job, and and then this was sort of the next step of that was moving into um, some larger scale uh, event operations positions.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds um, like you have a real strategy and a plan for your life.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't always work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me you, about it. I you make plans, and 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 I I'm not not overtly religious anymore but what's that saying it's like you make plans and god laughs or something so
0: yeah that sounds about right the the um thing that i always think of is actually a a death cab for cutie lyric um and it says it came to me then that every plan is a tiny prayer to father time (laughs) (laughs) just like please let this be a real thing please let this work
1: yeah (sighs) yeah i mean so that was like it was definitely a plan and a strategy, and, um, you know, I've. so here I am, so this is um, a year ago today, and I uh, left that job, <laughs> and I'm now in Chicago working on a theater production, so I, the heart wants what the heart wants, and, uh, yeah.
0: Wait, the video gaming job you've now left?
1: I have, yeah. Back to theater. <laughs> yeah, back to theater.
0: You're just like... <laughs> Skipping around all over the place, which I love.
1: Oh, yeah. That doesn't exactly fit in with the plan strategy model, but yes, I am. Mm,
0: There is no plan. I mean, as much as we like to convince ourselves that we have one, it's just like Mm -hmm. one day, like one one day absolutely everything can change. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) When an
0: opportunity arises or when disaster strikes, I feel like those are usually the two.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's been... Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, the plan sort of, uh, you know, unfolded for a little bit of time. And then, and then, you know, I just wanted to, I I was, you know, there's, uh, given how I feel about a lot of stuff that's going on in the world right now, I felt like I needed to be making art. And mm-hmm. um, there wasn't a lot of space for that in, um, in that world. So I, there was some other life stuff that made me feel like that too. And so I kind of just made a decision to shift what I was focusing on and now I'm terrified again.
0: So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, isn't that just the way it goes being an artist? I wonder.
1: (sighs) I think so. I think so.
0: Mm. Well, I'm like, where should we take this? We could go in so many directions. I feel like.
1: Yeah, I mean, tell me. Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, tell me a little bit about your time working at camp and what it was like to come up on that transition point a Mm -hmm. year ago, since that's kind of where we're focusing to start. Um, What was it like working there? How did you enjoy that? And then, you know, how were you feeling about making that transition?
1: Yeah, it was cool. Um, I mean, I really actually loved that job. Um, So I came to it, I had done a lot of teaching artistry work, you know, out of school and some professional development workshops, and I was sort of looking for, uh, something that was going to let me, give me some space to continue to make, you know, make art, and, you know, also be able to stay afloat, and someone referred me to this, they, they, I I don't know how they came across it, but they were like, hey, I think this would be something that you'd be into, and it was called Stephen Cates Camp, they're based out of San Francisco, and, um, kooky in a lot of ways, but actually even since I left have come to appreciate even more deeply kind of the the culture that they were trying to foster amongst their company. Um, so, you know, in short, their story was that this, um, this young man named Steve, who was trained as like a circus performer, uh, Mm -hmm. who was from New York, started this camp in the Bay Area. Um, and it was, you know, like any other camp, uh, keep kids occupied. And then he, he met his wife, Kate, who uh, went to Stanford. And they both had done some, you know, early edu- childhood education, uh, studying, I forget exactly to what level, I think he had a master's in like early childhood education. So they wanted to create sort of this environment, you know, when I think of camp, it's like, it, it, the best moments I remember from being a camp were when you felt like it was sort of your world as a kid, you know, and mm-hmm. you had free mm-hmm. reign to go do do, build, whatever you wanted, and the adults were kind of more there just to, like, help make it safe and answer questions for you. So mm-hmm. in a nutshell, that was the type of environment that they were they were striving to create in, in the camp. Um, and then internal to the company, it was cool because their, their model basically, like, you know, took people that were from all sorts of different backgrounds and made them you know, essentially the, the boss of their own site. You know, I guess sort of like a franchise model, but managed internally. So you had a lot of support from their uh, team in San Francisco with like budget management and um, operations. And, you know, they sent all the equipment to you and you worked directly with them throughout the year, but you had a year long position. You'd handled all the marketing, all the, you know, compliance stuff, depending on the particular market that you were in. Um, and their focus was really on like building organic relationships between the families who went to the camp and and the people who were running it. Um, So, it was cool. I mean, I got to bring on and manage a staff of about 25 people. including Matt, who was mm-hmm. my filmmaker-in-residence. Oh my goodness,
0: uh, he had so much fun <laughs> on that job. He would, like, come home and show me movies of these kids at camp, and, uh, I can't even. There's, like, movies I still remember, like, randomly, kids that I've seen that I've never met in real life, like, making jokes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was, like, and being surrounded, I mean, it was so cool to be able to, you know, uh, Ellie Phillips, who worked with us at The Flea, was also involved. She was my assistant director there. Um, and Brandon Rubin, who had been in the show with Matt, um, Mm -hmm. and had worked as a teaching artist extensively, was one of our counselors, so it was like, it was fun for me, out of the context of art, to get to sort of just be with and work with a lot of people that I knew, and then also welcome in, you know, an energy of, it was kind of also the first time that I was like a, you know, a senior person, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, Matt, and I consider Matt, Ellie and Brandon, and several others kind of in that group, but we also had you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who this was, you know, a summer Mm -hmm. gig for them. Um, Yeah, you were
0: really in charge.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) of 200 and something children.
0: How did that feel?
1: Terrifying. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. I mean, kids are so incredibly generous um, in spirit, and, you know, they've become... my observation attached to you know people very quickly um Mm -hmm. so like to be able to have such a you know you can feel how strong the relationship and strong and real it is to them and -hmm. to have that sort of happen over such a short period of time is was not you know I was a middle child so I didn't and I and none of my my sisters are yeah sister I don't have any brothers (laughs) none (laughs) of my sisters have kids. So, um, you know, I have little cousins, but it wasn't something I had really experienced to that level. I mean, like we had a day where we had to go move the location that I was managing to one of the other locations in New York, um, you know, for whatever reasons. And so I was dealing with some stuff off site. And then I showed up probably a little bit before lunch and like got mobbed by like a 100 kids. Like oh my God! They're so the excited to see you. Yeah, they were just like, "Dang!" And I was—it <laughs> was pretty overwhelming. I mean, it was—it was—it's—it's a it's pretty special atmosphere. But then there's the other side where you you deal with people's you know parents, and these are their, you know, their babies, and this you know the while it's a cool um, idea, and I talk about that idea of kids being able to sort of own the space. It's very difficult to accomplish in a, you know, the, the range of the kids was four to 12 years old.
0: Um,
1: mm-hmm. and, and basically, you know, majority of the day, they were allowed to go and do anything. Um, <laughs> so you're kind of constantly, you know, there were a lot of safety checks and lots of staff and, you know, it was a safe environment. But as the person in charge, you're always kind of on pins and needles for like, when is, when will a crisis appear? Even if it's just like, you know. Timmy fell on the stairs. It feels, yeah. you know, you you know, at least I was in relationship to how big of a thing that is for a parent. So you're like, everything feels kind of amped up.
0: Uh, taking care of somebody else's kids is one of the <laughs> have, you, have you done anxiety. it? Yeah, you know I mean, like babysitting. I've never yeah. taken care of like 200 kids at one time. But um, I remember I used to work for my... I used to work for a woman who has two kids and sometimes I would like go pick them up from school and even just taking them from, the Upper East Side to the East Village on the subway, like, at a crowded time of day. it was like, oh, my God, what if I lose one of them? What if one of them (laughs) jumps onto the tracks? Yeah,
1: yeah, you have that's like, (laughs) I call it, those were like the illogical fears. You're like, the kid's not going to jump on the tracks. Like, (laughs) those are all over camp. You're like, what if they do this? And then (laughs) the voice in your head's like, that's, they're not going to do that. It's not very likely.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but you're like, okay, but maybe just in case I'm going to position myself between Uh them and the track, you know. Uh oh, yep. it's ridiculous. Then, I then, love then, what the, you said. Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, and then the minute that you think, like, the kid's not going to do this, someone comes into your office and they're like, Jimmy ate X. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, why would you eat that?
0: <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. It looks good.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, I love what you said about the attachment piece um, because I think you know as you're talking about that it's like kids form really strong attachments really quickly i actually think that that's really true about me mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it's not like that's kind of a rare thing to be an adult who falls in love with other humans really quickly and really powerfully cuz i think that we're often trained out of that as we grow up um yeah. but it's just interesting really making like i think about the night that you and I had our conversation outside South, and I just walked away being like, I love him. (laughs) Um,
1: yeah, I I mean, I walked away with that too. And I have to be honest, like I trained out or (laughs) beaten out or whatever, you know, life. I mean, I'm a cancer and I was like, (gasps) yeah, when's your birthday? Mm -hmm.
0: July 22nd, which is actually probably right around when this will come out.
1: Oh, well, happy birthday in advance.
0: Ooh, thank you. <laughs> When's um, your birthday?
1: July 6th.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Fourth of July was, like, my unofficial birthday party as a child.
0: Oh, that's so fun.
1: It sure was. Um, but, yeah, I was just, like, thinking, um, you know, like, about, again, thinking about the kids from camp and just, like, how, you know, I was a wild, crazy kid, you know? Like, my mom used to say that the teachers um, – the teachers would say uh what was it it was David's classroom conduct affects <laughs> learning mm. but but he's funny <laughs> so like, so, you know yeah. and that's I feel like the entertainment part but like I feel like the older I've gotten the like more I it takes me much longer in general to like share that with people and I don't I mean, like, I have some inklings as to why that is, but that's why, like, when we met, it's just you meet those people who, for whatever reason, you know, you kind of, those things go away. Does that mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. sense?
0: Yeah, you just feel comfortable yeah. immediately. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so were you sad to leave the kids, or by the time that you had been there for a year, were you like, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to not be in charge of 200 small
1: people? Uh, man, it's it's kind of bittersweet, because I've ha- I've thought a lot about it since I left, and I definitely at the time, like, thought I was going on to something better, and there were a lot, I mean, I learned a ton in the new job, but it was not, um, to me, the like, there was a much better stronger immediacy to, like, how, what you were doing, like, you know, you saw how meaningful it was to those kids, um, mm-hmm. so I do miss that, and I do miss, I definitely missed the ability to sort of create your own team slash family, because um, a lot of the work that that I was doing after that was much more, um, you know, vendor relations, so it's kind of plug and play, you know, it's not really mm-hmm. like, you're not it's not that type of sort of family vibe, but, um, so I did miss it a lot. Um, and I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out what, what that all means.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so what, what has happened for you in the last year while you were in that new job, which you've now transitioned out of, what was, what were the Ooh. big high points or like the big learning curve or whatever's present for you that you want to talk about?
1: Well, the high points, I mean, it was, uh, so originally I I left the job, the the company that I joined hired me on to, they were launching their first ever convention in New York, so that was sort of the project that, that, um, you know, gave them the impulse to bring on a new person, Um, so I got to be part of the three-person team that sort of planned and executed the launch of this video games convention that drew, you know, 5,000 people over the course of two days to Terminal 5. On the mm. West Side, um, and I got to take a lot of ownership over running sort of large scale events like that. We did a few expos in Boston, so like in terms of, I think I need to remind myself that sometimes in terms of the scale of the work, like it was, there are definitely accomplishments. Like I got to direct an award show, um, mm. which was very cool. I had never worked with a in a theater that had that like level of equipment, and 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 it was live streamed with. And, to, and there were, like, 70 segments, and I got to call it all. So, like, that was a really cool experience, but it felt a little detached from, like, every other time I was working as a creator, there was, like, a real, you know, um, emotional attachment or need connected to, like, the impulse to make the work. And this was, mm-hmm. like, more, well, we're making it because people like games, you know. <laughs> and yeah. We want to we elevate this community, which is good, but not something that I felt that same deep level of attachment to um so that was sort of the work side um and then personally I um just got I can't really say just anymore I don't think but I in the past (laughs) year I was so one of the impulses to sort of start that journey to you know that whole plan or strategy was that I you know had sort of come to my own personal realization that I was pretty confident I wanted a family um Mm. I don't know. I didn't know what that meant, like, and I kind of accepted that, even in the acknowledgement that I wanted one, like, that could just mean a home with my dog and my, at the time, uh, my my girlfriend of seven years. Um, but that is not. That is something that has changed in the last year <laughs> mm, oh <laughs> to my address goodness. it indirectly.
0: <laughs> well, can I tell you something that's just really interesting in terms of, I mean, the way that this whole podcasting thing is unfolding for me is that every conversation is perfectly timed with what's actually mm. happening in my life. Um, but two days ago, Matt and I decided that we're going to take some space and he's going to move out for a
1: while. I'm... I, you know, I don't know the details of it for you, but my impulse is to say that I'm sorry because (laughs) I know how difficult that was for me. Um, Yeah,
0: it's it's so interesting because it's the same kind of juncture where I'm like, I want to build a life. I'm ready to have a family. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he's in a place where he's saying, I actually don't know where I am or what I want, which, you know, it's better to take the space now than yep. to move ahead blindly and then do this a few years from now so
1: but isn't it the worst <laughs> yeah, yeah it is the worst I know because I cried I feel for like, like
0: two full days and <laughs> I'm
1: similarly minded where like you know I'll say because so to be honest so for me it was we it was October um and it was language wise sounds similar you know it was sort of a I had done my own version of it a few years prior, but it was pretty quick. Like, And when I say that, it sort of was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some space. And then after a week, I was like, okay, well, I still don't know what I'm doing, but I know this was not part of the problem. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, you know, we worked through that period. And then about two years later, sort of on the other side, it was, I don't know what I want, but I know that I need something different to sort of, shake things into a place where I can start to really look at that for myself that was you know what I got from from my partner um Mm -hmm. and you know so it's like I mean this was six months ago and you know it's not that there haven't been conversations but I just life is messy and you know Mm -hmm. whenever if you've spent I don't know if it's been the same for you but like you know if you spent that much time with someone it's so in some ways, it's, like, great to be able to have the, like, sound mindset and emotional stability to be like, yeah, it's better that we, that we do this now. But then there's, like, the other insane part of me that's like, well, <laughs> can't we just, like, have a fight so I can be mad and not <laughs> mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. care about it anymore? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's so interesting because I'm kind of vacillating back and forth between being really excited and being like, oh, this is going to be great for us. Because we were roommates for a year before we started dating Mm -hmm. we kind of like fell into a relationship so we never got to date with any distance Mm -hmm. so I'm like okay maybe that'll be great but then I switch like go quickly back into the place of actually just being really pissed off after like it's like how after five years can you not even know (laughs) if you like me yeah (laughs) yeah uh but you know it's a roller coaster
1: life yeah it sure is yeah
0: Uh, so you've been through that while you were at this new job also it's so interesting when you're talking about those large-scale events that you were doing. And it's like, oh, it's it's really like resume building is what you're... Kind of,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, which it's... is kind of gross, right? <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, yes and no. I've been having this experience lately where I'm starting to look back on the things I've done professionally that have made no sense to me. Because I really have hopped around a lot. But now mm. I'm like oh, I see that that, like, year I spent working as a communications associate at a nonprofit, now that I'm, like, moving into a career in broadcasting, I see how that applies. You know, it's like, it all starts to come full circle in this weird way. Um,
1: Well, that's comforting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just makes me think that you're going to be doing... Artistic work that's going to require those huge event management skills, which makes me really excited.
1: (laughs) Yeah, me too. I mean, that's that's. I mean, that was kind of what was behind it strategically. I just, I think sometimes once you once I've gotten into it, it's hard to, you know, I I don't know. Maybe I don't know if it's me or everybody, but you you want to get to the 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 goal, so the Mm -hmm. I become Mm -hmm. impatient in the in the inner room and and probably don't appreciate the things that I have done enough. Because I'm like, well, this isn't exactly it yet. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I think that's a pretty universal experience for us to be like frustrated that we're not yet where we think mm-hmm. we want to be, even though we know that where we ultimately are going to end up is not where we think it is, but it's going to be better. You know, it's like this weird, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> can't we
0: just relax? Yeah. <laughs>
1: enjoy, smell the flowers or enjoy the yeah. scenery. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I feel like that's why I, why I enjoyed talking to you so much the first time uh, that we met, and and even now it's like something about uh, the way you approach the conversation just uh, makes me feel like that's there's time to sort of enjoy the the <laughs> I don't know the story <laughs> um, the, what's mm. gone into things um, the unfolding yeah the unfolding yeah, I broke my hand to... too what when it, within the last year. <laughs>
0: was it your good hand or was it the hand that you don't use that much
1: It was my it was the hand that I don't use that much. It was my first oh. serious New York bike accident. Ooh. But Ooh. luckily I had that had that health insurance so my hands all good now.
0: Man, this is like I love actually kind of the the larger umbrella of this conversation because i feel like what we're really talking about is like trying to be someone who wants to make worthwhile art in the world that can facilitate change being scared about your financial well-being being scared about not having access to health care being scared about living paycheck to paycheck and not knowing if you should commit to the art and hope that the money comes or if you need to like go build your resume and then come back in a year or two which is kind of what you've done
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's that's pretty that's a you summarize that well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how are you feeling now about, about moving back into the world of art and I mean, you said you're feeling terrified again. so tell me about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gladly. Uh, well, it was funny because I, so I you know made the decision that I was going to do that. Um, and I went to the artistic director at the theater that I work at in New York. I found out he was doing a project that I was very drawn to in Chicago. And so I asked him if I could assist him on the project and he, you know, graciously said yes. And it's been, so I've been, you know, I'm in the midst of that project right now. And so the mm-hmm. first two weeks were like heaven, you know, I was like, in know, rehearsal room again, um, uh, observing the some, best
0: room to be in,
1: right. Observing mm-hmm. some amazingly talented actors, um, share some incredibly personal stories, um, and put together a, a really timely piece um and then about two or three weeks in, I had that creeping sense of like oh I'm gonna be done in you know a hot second (laughs) and I'm not gonna have any income so I started to get that creeping sensation back in but it has been I mean I'll say nice talk to me in like you know a couple weeks but so I've Mm -hmm. spent our off days the last couple weeks like looking for contract work and, you know, sort of strategizing as to how to keep that balance of, you know, supporting myself as, so that I can make the, the art and the work that I want to be making. Um, and in a way that has been exciting, you know, looking at, looking at things and, um, you know, seeing how the experience that I gained over the last two years sort of opens up opportunities that previously hadn't been there in terms mm. of, like, supporting myself to make the art. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But um, that the, at least that has been exciting, to sort of re-engage in that cycle with some new, you know, new chips to play.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's more available to you now.
1: Well, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know yet, <laughs> but I think yeah. so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
0: And what do you want to do next artistically?
1: Mm. That's a great question. Answer that question. No, um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, fair.
1: No, that is part of. I mean, so one of the goals I set for myself in this year was to um, to have to have a stronger sense of what the answer to that question is. So I've been I've been trying to work on it, and I know. Um, I, I really think that the it's, I think it's going to be an exploration but the place I want to start at is um, so my, I'm Cuban and Irish, my, my father was born in Havana and um, m- moved to Puerto Rico and then eventually to Chicago when he was 14 and my mom grew up in a very, very, very small town farming community in southern Illinois um, mm. and so I think that where I want to start is by starting to mine and excavate the histories of where my family came from and sort of the cultures that, um, that exist around those histories. Cause it's not, um, my family very much has been sort of the assimilated, like middle American dream, you know, sort of thing, so to speak. So I grew mm-hmm. up, you know, privileged in, in Illinois, you know, going to school surrounded by a bunch of other white folks and, you know, I had cousins who, you know, we had an interesting conversation with my cousins this past year after Trump got elected, um, where we were all talking about, uh, my uncle sort of prodded at it, uh, and how we identified, um, and he, you know, he asked me, because I think he thought that I could take it, and that I wouldn't, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't tell where he was going for a while, and then eventually I understood that he was sort of looking at as all of us being first generation Americans, um, how even within one family, people identified, you know, some people said, I said, I, I identified as white, which, um, mm-hmm. is sort of part of that, part of why I want to start the exploration there. Cause that was interesting. And I've been doing a lot of thinking on that since then. Um, and you know, I have a, you know, a cousin who's uh, father was an illegal Mexican immigrant who was deported, you know, so they sure as shit didn't identify as white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I, you know, my, I have another set of cousins whose father, you know, was Peruvian. And so they outwardly don't look white. Um, so they, they certainly don't identify as white either. Um, so it, so that's sort of a, that's a starting point. Um, and so I've started to try to focus on um, communities of uh, in, the, in the Latino theater community in, in New York, and sort of start to have these conversations with different artists and, and see where it leads me. But that's, that's the path I want to start down in terms of exploring. And, and I've always felt sort of be passionate about social justice issues. So um, I would imagine that'll kind of circle back around to a project related to immigration or, you know the american dream or whatever but Mm, mm -hmm. that's where i'd like to start
0: well i think that's incredible it's such a the topic is so alive right now i feel like because i you know i have always identified as a white woman but if you take a look at my heritage you know like get into the dna of it it's just not true Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you know, but because of my outward appearance, I've been privileged to be able to walk through the world with that label and to reap the benefits of that. Right. Um, but when it gets down to it, you know, I think especially when it comes to being an ally, it's like, I got to stand up. These are my people for no matter who the people are. So it's so interesting to look at kind of those intersections in terms of like how we present and maybe how that's different from where we come from and even within families. I I love that.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. uh, It's uh, I had a very I met with a playwright who also is so he's of Mexican Irish descent and um, and we were commiserating over neither of us speak Spanish Um, Mm, mm -hmm. and I. (laughs) Always had like a you know, and obviously that's something that's that's within my power to change. Um, but I don't know. There's always been a lot of shame around around uh, even sort of owning that part of my history, and, and it's interesting too. And it's not not that I'm the the goal here is not to put it on my father, but like that's one of the things I'm interested in is like what what in society created the culture that was that that sort of assimilation culture, because if, if you met my dad today, I mean, he was, when he came to America, he was in high school, and uh, he learned the, he learned English by watching the news, which is what their father, my abuelo, had them do, so that they would learn English without a dialect, you know, they, mm-hmm. would, they wouldn't mm-hmm. have, um, you know, a Spanish dialect, and so, I don't know, there, I, I have a lot of learning on my own to do just about that, because... Um, that's a topic that interests me, is like, how do we sort of homogenize our cultures and end up with this, whatever, middle America <laughs> is. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, well, and the motives for it are so complicated, right? Because I was actually just listening to a podcast about this the other day, and they were saying that so many, so many people who immigrated to America and then chose not to teach their children the language of where they came from, it's like they thought that in doing that, they were helping, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but now these children are grown and there's this, there whatever this podcast was, I forget what I was listening to, but it was talking about how that's actually a real source of pain for a lot of people is like the heritage loss, the heritage that parents have chosen not to pass down, because I think we really, I mean, I think you're hinting at this, we lose something in that homogenization. It's so, um, so sad to lose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, the sense
0: of where we come from
1: yeah and the stories and um you know it was it struck me you know even I mean I didn't know to ask you know what I mean like yeah when I was growing up and it wasn't until I was even in my my 20s where I started to be curious about it and there wasn't I mean my dad's a very he's a very kind-hearted you know sweet guy but um he's pretty quiet you know he doesn't really he's not like a big gregarious storyteller and I realized in my 20s that I hadn't really gotten I mean I got a very brief version of it but I never really got a detailed version of like what his immigration experience was like as the oldest in a Mm -hmm. family of five children (laughs) you know like and as I sort of you know became more of a storyteller myself i was like hey there's there's like got to be some details here that that <laughs> have been left out like like you know, hold up
0: wait a minute there's a lot yeah, of- yeah
1: well, the, like <laughs> the story was like we went from you know we went from puerto from cuba to puerto rico and lived it and lived and then we went to chicago and that was like the whole story <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's got to be more to that story mm-hmm.
0: um
1: and you know he 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 went back. I mean, I have not been to Cuba yet, so that should probably be at the top of the list of things to do. Um, but he went back uh, a while ago now, probably like ten or fifteen years, and you know he talked. To, he came back, and you could see the joy and the happiness. And he would he was talking about how, um, well, it was a mix of things, but there was joy and happiness in there about like going and seeing people that. He knew from, we're talking like 40 plus years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they went and knocked on doors in the neighborhood he grew up in and it was the same families, you know, in the house. So mm-hmm. he was able to, you know, find cousins and friends and, you know, so that was like, I mean, it's, I know about it peripherally, but, um, you know, I haven't really seen it that directly. So it's, inter- mm. it's just, it's interesting to me. Um, also how in their family the because the Cuban immigration in large part, especially at the time that he was that our family was leaving, was sort of a m- middle class immigration. Um, you know it wasn't like a they weren't refugees necessarily to start with um, mm-hmm. um, to see the spectrum of uh, opinions and, and just and political beliefs within his you know five brothers and sisters. I mean it's like you can literally almost go through by like where they fall in the pecking order in terms of age and like they become progressively more liberal as you move down. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. is funny.
0: Yeah. I mean it's there's so much there's so much rich material to examine there. I'm thinking about i mean like so much of this feels relevant to my life right now you know like the the belief systems that we're raised in the parts of ourself that we're taught Mm -hmm. to hide but then later generations want to reclaim but maybe there's no authentic source for it anymore Mm. and the way things get distorted over time as they are or are not passed down Ugh, this country's a mess (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. can i can i ask um is there in your own personal, like, exploration of this, like, I mean, I feel, I, st- the biggest thing that I'm aware of that I keep, I'm like, I don't know how to even overcome it. I thought the player that I met with said, said it really well. He was like, I found that I need to just own my space in the conversation, um, which resonated to me. Cause I, I do think I hide in general. As an adult, I, I, I think I take a long time to, like, kind of own my presence in a room, which is funny because, you know, or we started by talking about, like, different leadership positions I've been in, which mm-hmm. in some way there's a comfort there because, like, the prescribed structure then says, like, okay, you can be in, <laughs> like, you have to talk in this room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: and i found that in like when it's not structured that way, I my tendency is to kind of just like I'm very hesitant to express my opinion directly or, you know, own my voice in the room. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I that when he said that to me, that really resonated, you know, having already kind of bonded over that he also was a non-Spanish speaker and being like, hey, you know, we're all kind of a part of this. Mass that is the American experience and, you know, regardless of what feelings you might have about how your history has dealt with it, you know, it's important that you be able to be, bring your voice to the conversation. Um, yeah. So I, that's, <laughs> I need to do that more because um, I'm not going to learn about other peoples if I don't show up, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. It's really, I will say it feels highly relevant for me right now and it's really challenging like for me I have been really excavating my internalized racism which Mm -hmm. um, you know the thing about internalized racism is that most of us don't know we have it Um, and it comes out in these subtle ways so I had a thing that happened last June where I was speaking in front of a mixed audience you know white women and women of color and unintentionally really activated some trauma for quite a few of the women of color in the room. Um, I had other women of color who were coming up to me you know thanking me for my bravery of like sharing my experience but there was this incredible divide and I realized kind of unpacking that over the last year that um, that there was some subtle racism getting in the way of me fully understanding the context of the situation um, so it's interesting because I think the first part of learning how to own your space in the conversation is knowing when to step back and listen to the people who know what they are talking about. <laughs> um, and then on the other like the other side of that coin, my own experience of oppression, because I think that's really what we're talking about often, is um, around patriarchy. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's like within my own family, I can see how my presence and the things I cared about as a child was valued much less than the things that all of the boys in my family cared about. Like everybody went to all the boys sporting events, nobody came to my dance stuff, you know? And so I grew up feeling isolated and unloved and terribly wounded. And, you know, part of what's been going on with Matt and I is I've been (laughs) <laughs> knowing these people in his family and loving these people in his family for the last five years however there's very deep misogyny there and there is a lot of aggression that's not even subtle mm. <laughs> and what's really happened lately is I've started standing up and you know when people in his family get aggressive with me I've started being like this is not okay you know and I called somebody out on a racist comment the other day on social media, and there are a lot of people who are like, you just can't do that when it comes to your partner's family. And But for me, I'm like, okay, but if we're not... Isn't that you know, where you,
1: you theoretically like want to be able to do that?
0: Right, and you would think, like, these people love me. They're going right. to hear me. Um, and that is unfortunately not how it went at all. And it's not the reason that Matt and I are taking space, but has definitely been a catalyst. And I'll say, we've almost broken up, like four or five times in the last year and a half, and almost every single time has begun with some event between his family and I, wherein it doesn't seem to matter how clear I am or how respectful I am or how (laughs) humble I try to be inside of a conversation. There's this weird thing where it's just like the way they receive me is so distorted, Um, and it has to do with tribalism, you know, Mm -hmm. and it also has to do with them protecting their sense of who they are, which they've learned. Like, it's, it's so interesting because it's about, I've been doing nothing other than learning how to take up the space inside of a conversation for myself. Mm -hmm. And it's really causing some major shifts in my life that don't necessarily feel good. So I understand why people don't do it more often, you know, because it's hard and it's scary and things fall away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And 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 I think the reality is like as you're sort of saying about what you experienced with Matt's family is that like it's one step. There's ugh, man, I, I'm not gonna remember it, but there's I there's this old story that a yoga instructor shared with me at with our class when I was. Oh, I fall. love that we're
0: gonna talk about yoga now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it was like I feel like it's probably also like an AA thing, but um, mm, it was mm-hmm. it was something like I walked down the street and like. I'm totally butchering this it's it was like I walk down the street and fall into a hole I can't get out I walk down the street I see the hole I fall in and I can't get out I walk down the street I see the hole um I fall in like somebody helps me out or something like that and then the the the, the eventually it gets to like I take a different street
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah you learn to like yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, so I guess what I was driving toward is just like that like well, you know what you were talking about with Matt's family is like they is maybe I mean I don't I don't know them like this but I see versions of it in my own family and certainly in the world. Some people just don't want to like look at the street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like they they they're not interested in that type of interpersonal you know conversation with themselves, you know, and and mm-hmm. that's you know, I'm, that's part of one of the things, like, I'm in my own place with my own personal journey with my own shit, but, like, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm thankful, like, every day that I did, you know, go to art school and get the training that I did, because it has allowed me and given me skills to be able to do that type of self-examination and, you know, meditate on things that are important to me and, you know, sort of try to engage with those questions, whether I'm successful in doing it or not, at least I have the, the tools to do it. And the, I, I guess, emotional intelligence, for lack of a better word, or um, now that I always do it well, you know, Lord, no, I probably should have, should have gone and talked to a, <laughs> talked to a therapist at some point in the last five, 10 years. But um, oh.
0: well, because that's the thing, it's a skill set, right? It's a skill set to have the tools to do this kind of excavation, like you were talking about wanting to go back and excavate, your family's history and heritage and all of that and even that takes incredible emotional acuity.
1: Yeah, and and I mean it's like and and that's the thing is you it's like it's an ongoing you know you, you never you, you don't know what tools you're going to need until you get into it too. So like that's its own thing. Be like I have the tool to be able to look at that and then like be honest <laughs> with myself and say like, "Hey, you know, idiot, here's some stuff that you didn't expect to unearth and you need, you know, you need to go talk to this person to, you know, Mm -hmm. excavate it more or deal with what you've discovered or figure out how to channel that into something useful. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's easy, you know, I I try to remind myself too, like it's easy to talk about it and then you got to go do it.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah. I just imagined myself getting into a situation and then realizing I didn't have the tools for it and just screaming and running away and being like, I don't <laughs> have the tools for this. <laughs>
1: That's all uh, like, like, did you, uh, did you, I, I don't, I, I'm, I apologize. I don't know uh, a ton about your like background. And so did you train as like a performer or what was your, what was your academic background?
0: Uh, I danced my whole life from the time cool. I was three until I was like 17. Uh, and then and then I've been on a really meandering path. I thought I wanted to work in non-profit, um, specifically focusing on girls' education in Africa. So mm. social justice and global health have also been very present for me my entire life, you know. Um, but I've been kind of derailed. There's been a couple big deaths in my life. and Thank you. It's It's interesting because it really, I mean... Talking about American culture and all the things that are wrong with it, we don't support people in their grief often. You know, I feel like my best friend passed away, um, I think in 2011, and then my father passed away um, almost four years ago now. And in both of those instances, I felt so incredibly isolated and alone. And so my education has really been about, in the last three years or so, learning those emotional skills to be able to support myself and to call in the support I need. It's actually super interesting because, I mean, by the time this comes out, who knows what will be going on with Matt and I because it's not going to come out to July. But I posted something on Facebook that was about getting my heart broken. And I was super aware that as I posted it that if anyone in his family sees it and probably a lot of his friends would be like, "Ugh, I can't believe she's advertising this. Um, however, within like 10 or 15 minutes of posting that, I received like probably 10 or 15 text messages from people that care about me that were saying like, hey, I want you to know that I'm here if you need me, if you want to talk, if you want to drink, if you want to walk, if you want to cry, you know, and I, I've had such big experiences of loss in my life in the past and not had that support so it's interesting because it comes back to what you're saying about learning how to take up the space inside the conversation it's like learning how to show up even inside our grief so that we can be supported regardless of the fact that everybody who's conditioned to assimilate with this culture of silence which I would say is everybody who buys into patriarchy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is going to judge you and is going to, you know, I've been terrified. I'm just waiting for, this sounds terrible. I'm just waiting for an attack to come on social media from someone who thinks that me speaking publicly about my experience is inappropriate.
1: Yeah, man. Um, that's, uh, yeah, sorry, it just sent me on a on a loop because I definitely have personally hidden my grief around my own uh, relationship loss um, and sort of hidden away. And it's, you're right, you know? I, I don't, I haven't really done enough self-homework to even know why I do that. Um, but I've definitely, it's something I've done in the before this. This isn't the first time. And no, you're right. I mean, even hearing you say that, it's like, I fully know that I have a rich group of friends that would in a heartbeat come out to support me, but I very much, you know, kept it away. And I, you know, I don't, (laughs) I don't know why, but, um, I think shame has a lot to do with it. Um, but I think that that's beautiful that, um, that you're able to sort of step in and own that and, you know, um accept that support
0: Mm, thank you I've really been practicing (laughs) (laughs) you know and that's the thing is I don't take for granted that it really is a skill I mean vulnerability is a skill in and of itself
1: that's what I I mean that's why I love like performers I mean in part that might be why I stepped out of performing (laughs) into directing Mm -hmm. is because it's it, it I mean that is why I appreciate what dancers, actors, I mean, I'm specifically drawn to, like, live performance, but why that is, you know, why I appreciate what they do, because it is insanely vulnerable. I mean, you know, the project that I'm working on right now has been one of the most humbling experiences. You were talking earlier about um, listening and realizing Mm -hmm. when it's your job to sort of listen more. Um, And so this story, this particular story is... Part of um, the play is uh, uh, "Father Comes Home from the Wars," and it was written by Susan Laurie Parks. And it's part of a it's the first three plays in a nine play cycle that examines um, the African American experience throughout American history. Starting mm-hmm. and generally, I mean, the the two second and third parts of the cycle haven't been written, but there's a you know assumption estimation that they're all going to sort of circle around a particular war in American history. Um, so the first part is, is around the Civil War and, you know, asks the question of what it would mean, you know, uh, for a, a slave to choose to go fight with his alongside his master in the Civil War and for the Confederacy. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, Susan Laurie Parks's writing is incredibly um, epic in scope and scale. So it, it takes on a hell of a lot more than, you know, the the simplistic even part of that narrative. And so, you know, I've been shutting up and listening a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so the, to be able to even be in that room and, and, you know, understand what, you know, how our imperialistic capitalistic society has impacted that group of people and their culture. Um, and they Mm -hmm. didn't even, you know, we were talking earlier about immigration. I mean, these this is a group of people who were ripped from their country and taken here, not, <laughs> they didn't cho- choose to come here. And so to sort of see how a, a large group of people, of artists in their own, you know, way get to um, grapple with that for themselves through this piece um, has been like, you know, I don't even know how I, the hell I got talking about this, but um, it. It shows me how important, and the director, um, Nigel Smith, I think is, I, I, I've I come to even more deeply appreciate his impulse to, like, I, he we used the word yesterday, like, shake. I don't know if he said shake the world, but, like, I get the image of, like, <laughs> if the world was a person that you could take by the shoulders and just kind of, like, <laughs> give, him a, <laughs> give him a, like, hey. Yeah, yeah um, listen
0: to me. <laughs> just yeah. listen to me. <laughs> yeah.
1: So we're at that point, I think, in in world history, where there's a lot of people that feel like we need another good shake.
0: Yeah. Well, and thankfully, I think that there are more and more people who are willing to step into that space and do the shaking. You know, myself included. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of what it means, I might lose. I mean, that it's so interesting to be like, I really can reduce this whole separation to like patriarchy and other forms of oppression. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um which, you know, I don't know. Like that's my side of the experience. I don't know that Matt would necessarily characterize it the same way. Um I heard something really beautiful the other day that I I want to share with you and also anybody listening who's wondering about, you know, like this balance between knowing when to listen and knowing when to to step in and take up space in a conversation. It's it's the rule was Like, for white people, if you are in a room with people of color, that's when you listen. And when you're in a room (laughs) with other white people, that's when you speak and speak loudly. You know, and same thing with men and women. It's like, if for for men who are in the presence of women or people who don't have a traditional identification in terms of gender or sexuality, that's the time to listen. And then when you're around other men, that's the time to speak up. You know, it's Mm. like... And that's so interesting because i would i think most people would argue that it's actually most challenging to speak up when you are around members of your own tribe because there's that primal fear of being exiled for your beliefs and then no longer getting to benefit from the privilege of being part of that tribe Uh, which is just like i feel like that's part of the like that is the microcosm playing out i feel like in my romantic entanglement it's just like, it's so meta and it makes me so frustrated. <laughs> <sighs> and regardless, I choose to be an ally.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So that's, I think that's what it comes down to is knowing like, this is my truth and it may cost me some things and some people that I love. And at the same time, I want to be on the right side of history.
1: <laughs> Definitely. <sighs>
0: All right. Well, we're almost at an hour now. What else is present for you before we, before we wrap up any, any other big takeaways from this last year of your life or anything that's been sparked by our conversation that you want to speak to before I ask you our final questions?
1: Um, a lot of, I mean, I'm feeling very grateful. So I'm, I'm definitely happy that, that, um, I had the chance to talk to you and, um, it, it's definitely indicative to me that regardless of where it ends up, this is probably made the right decision in the last year. And, um, and so, you know, if there's, I don't feel like it's my place to impart wisdom, but whether you, whether you want to or not, your, your passions will, uh, you, you're probably going to <laughs> feel the impact of either choosing to or not choosing to pursue your passions. So mm, <laughs> might as well yeah. grapple with that. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> might as well deal with that now instead of in a few years. Yeah, exactly. They're coming for you. Ugh <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Well, so I have a couple of questions we always close with, so cool. I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes again now <sighs> and take a couple more deep breaths and feel into the expansiveness of the energy that we're in right now and of all that you are creating and cultivating in your life, even amidst the sense of the unknown. And when you feel really clear and grounded in this moment, share with me in one word how you're feeling.
1: Happy. Mm. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Excited and happy.
0: I thought you might say excited again. I was like, that'll be cool. No one's ever said the same word at the beginning and the end. Uh, um, And then the last question is if you could go back... To a year ago today and speak directly to yourself from the human that you are now, wow. what would you say?
1: Be kind. Mm-hmm. Universally to yourself mm-hmm. and everybody around you.
0: Mm-hmm universal kindness that's a goal (laughs) yeah
1: life's hard for everybody be kind
0: yeah nobody's racism is their fault at this point you guys it just is (laughs) well some people
1: (laughs) (laughs) if you choose to to actively choose but that's a whole other conversation for another
0: day i know i mean we could guess so that's a whole other like series of 10 podcast episodes unpacking all of that conditioning and well slowly but surely I'm chipping away at it <laughs> well Dave thank you so much for coming to talk to me
1: yeah thank you for having me
0: of course I'm going to put all of your information in the show notes for anybody that wants to be able to find you online or follow your career or anything like that so I'll get that from you between now and then uh, is there any final thing you want to say to our audience before we sign off
1: no thanks for listening to a little bit about my last year and uh you know please reach out if you're interested to connect
0: Mm, love it all right well until next time bye everybody
1: bye